as a historian of medicine, I came up in a field that completely has missed what I think is one of the largest generators and circulators of medical knowledge in world history. And we've missed it precisely because we've been calling it a religion. I'm Frances Garrett. I teach Buddhism, Buddhist studies, and Tibetan languages at the University of Toronto. And I'm here with some students in my graduate class from this semester on Buddhism and healing. We've been so happy now to have finally been able to read Pierce Salguero's new book, The Global History of Buddhism and Medicine. And it came out in 2022 from Columbia University Press. I'll introduce Dr. Salguero, who is a scholar of health humanities and who's done a lot of really amazing and influential work on historical and contemporary intersections between Buddhism, medicine, and cross-cultural exchange. Dr. Salguero has a PhD in history of medicine from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and he teaches at Penn State University's Abington College near Philadelphia. He teaches Asian medicine, history, and religion. So one of the major, um, really important themes of Dr. Salguero's scholarship is looking for kind of the role of Buddhism in the global transmission and also local reception of knowledge about health, disease, and the body. So he's done some articles and books on this topic from a lot of different methodological perspectives, his, historical, religious studies, translation studies, and literary studies perspectives. So a really broad-ranging and, as I said, very influential scholar. And we're so happy to have you here with us. <clears throat> really, really uh appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk about uh, the book with you guys. And um, I also have to say that this this book in particular, and really the last 10 years of my scholarship has been entirely a collaborative uh, effort. The book is a product. Yeah, it's a product of my own research, but also of my own organizing of a large group of colleagues to contribute over the last 10 years to the two anthology volumes that preceded this book. And those, those two anthologies were collectively almost 100 chapters and I think 86 colleagues that, that contributed. And basically, they taught me about the global history of Buddhism and medicine. And I sort of like drew together all of those threads in this book, as well as trying to pull together the scholarship from a lot of different corners of the academy into kind of a coherent narrative along with my own research. Um, but really, I see this book as kind of a very much the product of, of many, many, many people, their work over decades, uh, sort of informing all these threads, kind of pulling them all together to make a coherent, larger, big picture sort of story. It's really a wonderful compliment to those two anthologies um, and to the other work that you've done. And I, I love the way, um, as you say, the book kind of does weave those all together into this narrative that's really um, remarkable and so well done. Did you mean from the beginning to end? I don't know if this is the end, but to like do those anthologies and then create an, a book from those kind of or after those or did it just evolve um, organically? Yeah. So I'll confess that this book is actually what I wanted to do all along. Like this oh. book was, uh, you know, <clears throat> 20 years ago, I, so I, but I started out as a practitioner of traditional medicine and was really interested in all of the kind of intersections of Buddhism and 
the Asian medicine practice and all the connections between Thai, with Thai medicine, which I was studying and Chinese and Indian and Japanese and was just fascinated by all of that. Uh, too, too fascinated um, to remain as a practitioner. I was too drawn by these more kind of like cross-cultural comparative and historical questions. Um, to be satisfied staying in, in practice. And so, you know, I went back to graduate school, like with this project in mind. Um, and it just took me, of course, you know, you have to write a thesis that's very, very focused and you can't write this kind of like sweeping summary of, you know, all of the world, <laughs> 2,500 years of the whole world of perspective on a topic. So, you know, I had to, I, and, you know, happily, I, I focused my research on medieval China and, uh, you know, wrote what I needed to write in order to get, um, you know, my first book out and to get tenure and then came to the opportunity to do the project that I had thought of all along. But by that time had just, um, really connected with, um, so many scholars who were doing such interesting work that I realized this wasn't a one person project. You know, I kind of like matured over the, over those 20 years into realizing that this was, this was, inherently a collaborative project and I, one person can't pull it off well. And so then I decided, okay, the next thing to do would be to create these anthologies to create the source material Mm -hmm. because I don't read all these languages either. Right. So Mm -hmm. to create the source material to then be able to write the book. Um, so I started collecting those source materials for the anthologies in 2013, right after I turned in my manuscript on my first book about medieval China. I then opened uh-huh. up, all right, next project is going to be this collaborative project, starting with these anthologies. Uh-huh. It's really neat as a kind of an example of, um, you know, like in digital humanities, humanities, we talk about the importance of revealing your data and making the, the data of your research as accessible as the sort of end product and how the end product is anyway, as you say, always a collaboration and always pulling together so many threads. And so why not expose the process as well as the so-called end result? And so you really have done that. I guess I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I love the section in your book that you have of um, translations into English of um, different source materials. It's very helpful to um, have thought of including that as a kind of a stepstone to further resource research in the area. And I mean, the whole book seems to be laid out in that sort of way as like, here's a contribution of where things stand now. And please, it's an offering to others to like take up this, you know, areas of research and expand on what you've done. And so it's really um, laid out in a way that makes that very clear and accessible. Yeah, that, that's exactly the, 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 the spirit of the book was uh-huh. um, I don't teach graduate students. I teach undergrad classes. Um, and this, this is a good for them to like get an overview of uh, Buddhism and medicine. It's a good book for undergraduate um, uh-huh. courses, but um, probably an undergraduate would read it and maybe read some of the translations in the anthologies and write a paper on it. But, but I really wanted this to be sort of like what you said, an, 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 an opening or an offering to um, graduate students and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe p- people who are straddling different fields, right. In order to just to open up the topic, to connect a bunch of pieces together and then to provide the resources for people to be able to to start moving, you know, the moving forward, moving the research forward. The the wide range of different um, traditions and geographic and, and temporal, uh, you know, um, Buddhisms that are presented in the book, um, you know, I think present really different ideas about you know textual authority and and how that's constructed, and 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 I think um, you know the Tibetan historical context is one 
piece of it. And, you know, medieval China would be completely different and contemporary Thailand would be different than, you know, the, the mindfulness, you know, clinic up the street. Right. So, so I, I think this is just sort of a general point about Buddhism and medicine that I try to make in the book that I sometimes get misquoted on. So I tried to make it like super clear in the book that Buddhist medicine isn't one thing. It's not like it's a topic, right? It's not a specific tradition or a particular, um, you know, lineage or something like that. It's a topic. It's a, it's a theme or it's a, it's a field, right. To explore. And so I think, yeah, I think textual authority and how it's constructed and how texts operate would be one of the, a, a central question in the field of Buddhist medicine studies. Right. I don't think there's one answer to it. I think it's a, it's a question that we would bring to whatever temporal or historical context we were going to look at in terms of, you know, how, how are Buddhists involved with medicine, with healing in this, in this particular time and place, how do they construct their authority for their groups? I mean, there, there's some common patterns that emerge when you start comparing, you know, generally speaking, scriptural authority was a lot more meaningful in the pre-modern period than it is in the modern, but I wouldn't say that that's it's categorically unmeaningful today. I think there's a lot of appeal to scriptural authority and histor historical authority among contemporary practitioners. And it's not to say it was like nobody ever looked beyond the scriptures back in the past either, because there were, you know, my, in my area in medieval China, there was, um, you know, revelations or dream in dreams or in visions was a, was a very common way of acquiring healing knowledge. Um, I think the same is true maybe in Tibet. I know it's true in you know, contemporary Thailand as well. One thing that you just said about in the past, whether scriptural authority had more weight than um, it might do today. I mean, today, of course, we have, you know, the scriptural authority of PubMed, which has a lot of weight or, you know, academic presses or and so forth. But then also in the past, of course, if most people were illiterate, then healing knowledge, primary authority for healing knowledge, I guess, would have been you know, your grandmother, you know, the people who were, who you actually had contact with. This is a layer that we can't always get to, but um, I, I do think also because we're dealing with when, or let me say when we're dealing specifically with healing, as opposed to other kinds of knowledge, right? Healing knowledge eventually connects with the material physical reality of the human body, right? So, so eventually, uh, I mean, there can be lots and lots of different sources of authority, but eventually, you know, whether or not the sick body becomes better matters a little bit more in, in this discourse than maybe the, in other discourses, right. That you can, that you can imagine. So that is also an authority that's playing, that's at role, that's playing a role in these debates as well. Yeah. There's, there's, um, kind of an interplay between sociological, textual, material realities in, in, in these um, Buddhist medicine traditions that I think is an interesting difference. That's different than, say, Buddhist exposition on karma or on, you know, the celestial realms or on meditation or something else, right? So I'm wrestling a bit with my question because I'm still trying to tease it apart in my mind. But like my Buddhist practice comes through, no, I'm much more aware now how it comes through kind of a modern Theravadan stream um, practice, which has mostly had some of the ritualistic elements carved out of it. I had a teacher bring one of uh, an article of yours from Tricycle Magazine, uh, Dr. Dharma. To our class a year and a bit ago and, uh, and it really kind of was like oh it kind of opened my mind to these um aspects of buddhism that I i'm a thai massage practitioner as well and i hadn't been able to kind of merge 
my Thai massage practice with my Buddhist practice. Exactly. I knew my teacher had kind of painted this lineage back towards Dr. Jivaka, but he remained kind of mythical in my mind. This weaves into the tantric chapter as well, where a lot of the practices seem to have almost, I don't know if they're nature-based or indigenous, but, and I know that there is an emerging of kind of indigenous practices and local practices, you know, the word, um, shamanic practices or nature-based practices came into my mind. Robert Thurman has this YouTube uh, video titled, Was Buddha a Shaman? I guess I'm curious about, were these practices present in early Buddhism? I know in some of the sutras, they talk about tree spirits and this cosmology that opens up into unseen beings. But by the time you're in the tantric world, you're seeing a lot more of this, these energy healing practices and ritualized stuff. I guess my question is Robert Thurman's question, like, was Buddha a shaman? What's the relationship between what, if any, is the relationship between indigenous or shamanic practices and Buddhist practices along different roots of its history? Robert Thurman connects the word shramana to shaman. And so I'm curious in terms of the overlap of healing practices between those. That's something I think about too. I also started off, you know, practicing Buddhism and, and traditional medicine in Thailand and sort of that's how, what, what, what my entree into this material was too. And one of the things I was always trying to square was, you know, this kind of like very orthodox Theravada sort of like party line about the Buddha says not to get involved with spirits and magic and energies and so on and so forth. But then like, that's everything in Thailand <laughs> all around, right? That's all anybody's doing in, 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 in their daily practice. So I'm um, trying to square sort of like what was in the text with what was in, in, in the living tradition, you know, the, of everyday practice was, was the central question that got me sort of like brought me over to the academic world. Right. Um, so, so I think, I think, you know, I would say that this is another area of kind of like constant difference and, 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 and comparison that we could do as Buddhism moves to different places, right? What, what essentially is moving from place to place. There's, you know, there's texts, there's practices, there's kind of like orientations. Um, but one of the things that moves, if I, I don't know if this is the best way to say it, but, but there's kind of like a Buddhism provides like an open framework, like Buddhist doctrine provides an open framework for local practices and traditions around indigenous spirits and spirits of the land and so forth to be incorporated into the doctrine. Right. So it's different than, I don't know, Islam or Christianity or other traditions that have a more closed framework. They, they still do draw it, but they do so less than or less, less um, obviously than, than Buddhism. So um, I think you can certainly find, you know, these um, all kinds of spirits and spirit mediumship and possession rituals and, uh, you know, energy manipulation and magic and so forth, like wherever Buddhism is because of the because of that open framework. Um, and then as Buddhism spreads from point A to B to C to D, sometimes those elements also move along with doctrinal sort of more scriptural um, material. And so that's why I refer to that as kind of like the ocean of practice, right? The flowing currents of information between say Thailand and Tibet and, you know, Southwestern China and, you know, Japan that, that, that these practices swirl around and they're, tr they're, they're traded and exchanged back and forth. But we, we just don't have any way of seeing that from a historian's perspective, you know, frequently, sometimes we do, but, but a lot of that is, 
is invisible to us as historians. And so the answers aren't in the history. They're not in the text, right? We, we have to look to contemporary practice to, to find those answers. As far as the texts are concerned, like what I know from colleagues who specialize in Sanskrit studies and have like looked at this is that the, or sorry, in Pali studies and have really looked at this is that the, the whole idea of a subtle body does not appear in the, um, or in the early Buddhist tradition. Um, there's a couple mentions of things of, of things that are suggestive of later developments, but they're not subtle body proper. And that that is a later development in later forms of Buddhism. And of course you start to see it in Mahayana and then it becomes very much elaborated in, in the in the tantric stuff. So I think from the textual perspective, you can, you can find that kind of progression, but what does that say about what people were actually doing? And I take your question to also be sort of pushing back against the, the sort of, um, maybe the Protestant Buddhism, right? The, the, the contemporary, um, secular Buddhism or Protestant Buddhism, right. That, that looks to define Buddhism as strictly what, you know, Siddhartha Gautama said in like the Pali Canon, right. And, and, and not even all of it, just the ones where he talked about meditation, right? <laughs> right? So, so um, I think your your question is pushing back against that model of, of Buddhism. And I think that the more we push back against that model of Buddhism, the more of like what actually is happening in the Buddhist world comes forward. The more we see spirits and indigenous ideas and energies and magic and ritual and so forth emerging to the coming to the fore. I, I love what you say at the end there, because my pushback also weaves in around my practice, my spiritual practice, which includes plant medicines in a ceremonial context. And so trying to reconcile, like, not that I'm have to be hardline and dogmatic about what my Buddhist practice is, but it's like figuring out how to merge practices that come from different areas and I guess trying to find a way that well actually there's already evidence either historically or currently in other practices where which in, might not include Amazonian shamanism because it's of a different reason region but there is evidence that um, practices that are maybe not the same but comparable exist also in the Buddhist world yeah seeing a conflict between the Pashna on the one hand and plant medicine on the other hand, seeing a, a, an irreconcilable conflict between those two is a product of a certain kind of Buddhism. Whereas plant medicine is like very much a part of Thai Buddhism. It's very much a part of Cambodian Buddhism, Sri Lankan Buddhism, Mongolian Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, right? So it's just maybe not very much a part of secular, you know, North American Vipassana. So notions of ecosystem health and planetary health those words or that particular phrasing is very modern it's actually very contemporary right it's very it's very late 20th century um 21st century um and so we don't find um you know those kind of turns of phrase specifically in the scriptures but there have been in the last couple of decades numerous buddhist um, teachers, thinkers, writers who have been trying to do that connecting between our contemporary understandings of the planet and the ecosystem and, and the, 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 the role of the human and the Anthropocene and so forth to connect those with Buddhist, Buddhist scriptures and Buddhist traditions. Uh, so I'll mention people who have done that kind of work, like David Loy is a North American, I don't know, um, who's written, you know, quite a bit about that. There's, there's also, um, Venerable Sheng Yen, who's the founder of the Dharma Drum organization in Taiwan, who's written at least one book on that and spoke a lot about that. I think Thich Nhat Hanh has too. So there's like, you know, there's like high profile people who have, um, 
uh, sort of like address address that question um, from that sort of more contemporary kind of framework from a more sort of traditional historical sort of scriptural framework, which is kind of what I know more of also in terms of my, my familiarity with the way that um, in Thailand, Buddhists think about the body and the world, you know, some of that work is being done by this kind of like um, microcosm, microcosm sort of um, language that uh, all Buddhist traditions share of the elements the four or the five elements that make up the human body, the earth, the water, fire, wind, and sometimes the space that, you know, those things emerge in is the primary way of thinking about the body, the body's health, um, disease, kind of how you keep your, how you keep yourself healthy, how you recover from illness. Uh, and these same terms are used to describe the foods that we eat and the, the, the environments in which we live and the, the, the forces of nature. Um, and so there's very much a, language there for understanding oneself in connection with the natural forces around us. Um, you know, it's not necessarily phrased in the same terms as, you know, ecosystems and planetary and so forth. But, but I think, I think that's, that's where you would find some of that in the scriptures and the, in the historical traditions, that's where you would find some of that kind of, um, some of those kind of connections taking place. Um, people are making connections between the microcosm and the macrocosm. Another place where you might find it is in, you know, I mean, our contemporary kind of um, environmental consciousness involves a lot of our sensibility towards animals and plants and the food that we eat and so forth. And so just back to Gary's question about, you know, spirits and tree spirits and, and uh, you know, animal spirits and so forth. Um, there's a long, very multicultural tradition of thinking about vegetarianism thinking about the you know the the right relationship between humans and animals there's you know a lot of a lot of practices and traditions around local spirits and plant spirits and so forth and how people should interact with them properly again none of this is kind of like contemporary environmental ethics but it's all sort of raw materials that then modern contemporary commentators have used in order to make those connections two words that are problematic, Buddhism and healing, right? So Buddhism is not one thing, like like whose Buddhism, which Buddhism, which Buddhist are you talking about? Um, and then define healing and healing is an English word, right? So, you know, there are other words there, you know, this would have been, this this discourse is, is using different words because it's taking place in Chinese language, in Pali language, in Tibetan language, and the, whatever the word is that we might translate as healing or medicine or whatever from those different cultures in their own native cultures have different uh, spheres of resonance or, 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 or spheres of um, connotation, right? So, you know, we, we might make a big deal about distinguishing healing from medicine in English, but is that even a a distinction in another language or are the lines drawn completely differently in another language? I would say, how does Buddhism define healing? That would probably be like the central question maybe in the field that I'm carving out or kind of like encircling, like this is a field of Buddhist medicine studies. And maybe our first question is, yeah, <laughs> how do we define Buddhism? And then how do we define medicine or healing? 
different Buddhists define healing in completely different ways, right? You're like contemporary neuroscientist Buddhist that's trying to do research on the you know effects of mindfulness on the brain. She's not defining Buddhism or healing in the same way as you know a sixth century yogi from India. Across the board, across all forms of Buddhism, historically and today, across all the cultures that I looked at, I would say the single most common theme that emerges is just to like grossly oversimplify tons and tons and tons of difference, but to grossly oversimplify and and say that there's one commonality. It's that I think generally Buddhists understand physical health to be very, very closely connected to mental and spiritual health, that you don't have one without the other. So I could say Mm. how a Buddhist might define healing may be in much broader terms than just the physical body. I was thinking regarding your observations with Buddhism and biomedicine working alongside one another, have you noticed Buddhist viewpoints that are against the ethics of forced psychiatry? And do you think illness narratives tracing back to karma or some personal change that can be done upholding ableism? What should we think of Buddhism's like compatibilities and complicities with the structure of a prescription, a prob- like of problem-solving framework? So I, I guess I'll start just from like my vantage point as like a textual historian that really like I do a lot of translation of texts and reading and so forth. There's a lot of ableism in Buddhist scriptural traditions from defining any form of disability as a karmic, as a, an outcome of bad karma, uh, threatening punishment with disability for slandering the Dharma. For example, there's many, many ways that this emerges. One kind of textual kind of touch point that that both Francis and I know pretty well that is shared between Sanskrit, Tibetan, Chinese, Pali versions is a is a kind of a, a narrative of how the uh, the embryo grows in in the uterus, how 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 conception happens, and then the baby grows and then is born that refers to a process of the it it describes the way that each week a different kind of karmic um, influence moves through the uterus and affects the baby in different ways and part of that process of development the karmas of past actions come in and 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 determine the um specifically this this text or these texts specifically um, refer to the car the action of karma in causing disability um, also in causing um, ugliness or beauty as well, um, other kinds of, you know, physical features. Um, so, so that's just, I think it's just baked into the traditions. I think it's very difficult for contemporary Buddhists to extract kind of the Buddhist notion of karma f- from this kind of like very ableist historical discourse. Although I think there are Buddhist, contemporary Buddhist activists and, and thinkers that are doing that work. You know, thinking of Buddhism's compatibilities and complicities with structure of prescription, I, I, I like the way this is phrased. And, and I'll, I'll just start by saying there's a very common trope within Buddhism. And there's texts that I've translated from Chinese um, that just lay this out like super precisely that the Buddha is the, you know, the great doctor. The Dharma is the prescription for those, you know, and, and humanity's ailment is, is you know, dukkha. And the text that I translated in Chinese um, or from Chinese is um, relating the Four Noble Truths to the doctor's practice of um, diagnosis, prescription, administration, and then cure. In 
the text that I read, which is you know predominantly medieval Chinese texts, although I look at Pali and English too. So um, these texts are very much framing the whole Buddhist tradition as a an a therapy, as a as a as an intervention for a problem. Um, and I think I didn't think of this before in exactly those terms, Jade. But I think your ter- your terminology, Buddhism's compatibility and complicity with a structure of a prescription, I think. I, I would say that very, that resonates very much for me. Seeing Buddhism as uh, you know a, an intervention or a therapy to intercede in what's inherently a problem, and that the Buddhism provides the solution for that, I think is that's the way the tradition understands itself. That's different than other traditions. I mean, that's quite different than Kerry was talking about Amazonian shamanism, and it's quite different than shamanism. It's quite different than, um, say, Taoism, maybe, or other other traditions that may approach this question a little less kind of stru- structured in a prescriptive kind of way. But I think it's inher- I think it is inherent to the Buddhist tradition. Um, whether I'm not saying all Buddhists think that. I'm not saying that there isn't some pushback against that in contemporary circles. But I I, I do very much think Buddhism is compatible and complicit with the structure of prescription in terms of the stuff that I've looked at. For better or worse, I think what's so great about what Jade is pointing out is that I think we often have thought of that structure as kind of something positive, like it's, uh, you know, therapeutic in a positive sense, as you're saying, but I think what Jade is so pointing out so profoundly is that that can be very negative if there's a forced, forced therapeutic intervention. And of course, we've seen many examples of that playing out in a dangerous way. Medicine and religion, both like I was saying earlier, these are modern Western terms. These are modern English terms with modern, you know, resonances and uh, and a a European history, right? So I don't think those two words make any sense at all in describing um, the social and cultural realities of medieval China. Um, That was kind of like the main point of or one of the main points of my dissertation book. And then uh, I would draw that forward into this book and say that, you know, it's complicated. There's, there are Buddhist discourses that seem to suggest that victory over illness and death are like core to the tradition, you know, including the, the, the life story of the, the myth of the Buddha, where he goes out and sees the, the old age sickness and death and the, and the, and the um, renunciate, right? And this is what puts him onto the path in the first place. So there's, you know, countless examples of um, perspectives throughout the Buddhist world that are um, telling us again and again and again, how central health is to um, the, the whole Buddhist project. But then there's also counter, counter positions you know, in, 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 in the Pali, for example, where the Buddha explicitly says, don't get involved in healing to the monks. That's not, that's a worldly activity. That's, we should be focused on the, you know, exclusively focused on Nibbana. So there's like multiple voices, right. In the material historically. And, and I would say from, from my perspective, looking at the texts, generally speaking, we can observe healing activities, health activities, medical activities, moving more and more into the center of the Buddhist project as time goes by. So in the Pali, it's, there's a lot less than in the Mahayana and then in Tantra it becomes even more central. Um, so that's an argument I make in the book. You can disagree with it if you, if you, if you care to, but um, you know, the, the first like 
I guess three chapters of the book after the introduction are, are following that trajectory of, of, of healing activities becoming more and more central to the whole project of the Dharma. That's in the text. But then in terms of like everything we know about the practice, what's happening on the ground, Buddhism has been about healing from the beginning. It's been about ghost management, you know, prosperity, you know, and, and, and healing from, from the very beginning. Um, as far as I'm, as far as I know, there isn't a Buddhist tradition on earth. that's not that, that hasn't been completely obsessed with, with health and well-being. down to the modern secularists. Cause the whole thing they're interested in is <laughs> well-being and mental health. Right. So, um, I, I just feel like from, from the perspective of a historian of medicine, which is where I'm coming from, to not have talked about Buddhism and its role in the global history of medicine has been a massive oversight in our field. And that's kind of my, that's my main kind of, that's why, <laughs> that's, that's my whole point as a scholar, right? If, if there's one thing you could boil my argument down to is like, as a historian of medicine, I came up in a field that completely has missed what I think is one of the largest generators and circulators of medical knowledge in world history. And we've missed it precisely because we've been calling it a religion. I also think that, you know, it's helpful. I argue to my religious studies colleagues that, you know, Hey, medicine's really central. You know, y'all should pick this up and look at it too. I, I make other kinds of arguments, but my, that's my central argument is to my own field in the history of medicine, that this is, that we're ignoring Buddhism uh, for modernist, myopic modernist reasons that and we're, we're, we're missing a major, major, major part of the global history of medicine. Yeah, that was so well said. Thank you for stating that so strongly. That's really helpful to hear. Just in our final few minutes, I wonder if I could ask you to just leave us with some thoughts on where you're going next. Also, related to that, or maybe not related to that, I don't know, you can say, um, you are kind of distinctive among um, my colleagues in really having a strong commitment to public scholarship, I would say. Like, you, you do a lot of blogging and film work and website development, and you also wrote a popular book recently. Well, we hope it'll be popular, a, a book for the public. And I wonder if you feel like saying a bit about that and why you came to this kind of commitment to public scholarship, mm. if that relates to, you know, work you see in the future, or maybe that's something different. Yeah. I mean, I, that's been sort of like something I've been involved in all, all along. Um, yeah. You know, even when I was doing my writing my dissertation, I, I wasn't so quite, when I was in graduate school, I wasn't so so public, but I was teaching, um, teaching, uh, about Buddhism and history of medicine and, and in, in, um, like alternative medicine schools and workshops mm. around, um, the U S and Canada as well. So, um, you know, non-academic, um, circles as I've moved into more in depth into my scholarship, I've been able, I've been sort of like putting some, um, articles and blogs and somebody mentioned the tricycle article and, you know, talking to groups of, you know, I, I, I teach, uh, some adult education classes at the local library sometimes. And, you know, just talking in those environments gets me used to talking about a particular topic in kind of a low, lower stakes environment that, that, you know, then I can do a presentation, you know, to scholarly colleagues and not be so nervous that I'm just piloting this for the first time. Right. Um, so there's a very kind of concrete benefit that comes from it that I, I want to mention. It's not the reason I do it. Um, the reason that I've always done it been be because I, I have been very 
sort of a beneficiary of publicly circulating information and knowledge. Um, and I always was very interested in, you know, I, I mean, I'm an avid consumer of podcasts and, and blogs and articles and all kinds of stuff um, to get knowledge myself. And I feel like that once we become professional scholars, often because we're so focused on publication for tenure or for evaluation or whatever, our, our lane gets very narrow and we start to just speak to other you know, the six other people <laughs> that we're friends with in, the, in our field. And we write these hyper-specialized kinds of uh, works that only really kind of like are read, you know, by a small number of people. I did all that to get tenure. You have to do that to get tenure. But even while I was working towards tenure, I was wanting to speak to across disciplinary lines, speak to medical professionals, to be able to speak to, you know, um, Buddhist practitioners, to be able to speak to practitioners of Asian medicine. You know, and to do that, you can't write these kind of obscure academic, you know, these thick academic articles. You you need to write in the genres that people will read. So yeah, so I, I'm interested in that in like having a broader transdisciplinary conversation around these topics, and and so that's always been the motivation behind them. So that that does relate to what I'm doing next. I, I don't know. I've put out a couple talk. I put out a couple talks about this, but I haven't really sort of like been very public about the next project. But it, what I what I'm interested in is the the uh, adverse effects of spiritual practice, the adverse effects of meditation and uh, um, spiritual practice that are being identified, you know, for the first time by kind of the mindfulness backlash is now happening. I don't know if some of you are aware of this, where mindfulness used to be a couple of years ago, it was awesome. Everybody should do it. But now it's like, wait, there's some, you know, there's some downside, there's some potential for, you know, psychological or yeah, for, for psychological side effects. Um, as that material is starting to come out from, you know, the, the medical researchers, the sort of spiritual practice communities are starting to be aware and concerned about these issues. So it's starting to bubble up to the surface in the, in the popular culture, right? In the blogospheres and in the podcasts and so forth. And this is something that in my anthology, there's at least three uh, chapters that relate to uh, meditate what's in Chinese and Japanese called meditation sickness. And, and in Tibetan, there's the whole phenomenon of like lung disease or lung um, disorders that are, come from practice, adverse effects from practice. And this is something that's um, quite well known within sort of traditional Buddhist circles and in the scriptures, we have material about it. You know, again, it's may, maybe part of that sort of like Protestant whitewashing or whatever took place in North American circles that made it so that Buddhism was so disconnected from anything other than, you know, very positive glowing descriptions of you know, what Vipassana or mindfulness will do for you. But, but um, you know, these, these, these aren't secrets. These are materials that are out there. They just haven't really been paid attention to. So my next project is uh, gathering, again, a group of colleagues who might be interested in translating um, some of that material and bringing it to light. The difference between this new anthology project and the previous one is that I would, um, I very much want to do this in a way that it's not just speaking to a scholarly audience or to like an undergraduate graduate school audience, but to actually produce translations and explanations of this material in a way 
also serve the needs of the um, mental health community as well as the um, practice communities. Um, so something that's more transdisciplinary in nature that that speaks beyond the academy. And so I, again, it's another collaborative project. And the the way these work is, I just sort of like put the idea out there and hope that people that people are interested in it and come on board. You know, I hit up my friends for contributions and, and, but I also just sort of like put it out there and, and as an open invitation for anybody that's interested in getting into this area. It's a small group at the moment, but hopefully growing a group of people that are on board for doing something like this. And, um, you know, again, it's producing the source material first and then, and then eventually, you know, whatever the, the synthesis, the book or the, the article that synthesizes that material would emerge. Great idea. And I like the, I, the way you're wanting to make it accessible to meditators or science mm -hmm. people who are studying this, you know, the so-called so science of meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's is a whole other question about like, valuable. how do you, how do we as historians or Buddhist study scholars or historians of medicine, how do we translate things in ways that are open enough, other disciplines and even non-scholars can plug into it um, oh, without necessarily, I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm not going to be able to, nor do I want to like make kind of equations between what I'm reading in the scripture and like neurological syndromes, right? I, I don't want to do that kind of work. That would be too too much violence to the original text, right? But But to translate it in a way that makes that kind of bridging uh, possible and 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 helpful. I really um, can't thank you enough for agreeing to come and speak with us and for writing that book that we all enjoyed. Well, thanks for all the compliments on the book, Francis. I appreciate it. <laughs>